Traders Point, how we doing? Doing all right? Hey, it's so good to be with you today. And but before we get rolling in this message, I just want to take a moment and look back and celebrate a little bit. You know, we just came out of a huge series in the life of our church where our lead pastor, Aaron, walked through just the topics at the center of the deconstruction conversation. And week in and week out, he poured himself out. Just every message is so much godly wisdom, holding on to that tension of grace and truth and just wrapped and empathy. And, and you know those messages don't just happen, right? It was hundreds of man hours of prayer and study. So can we just take a moment and celebrate Pastor Aaron, all that he did, brought hope and help to so many. But today we're starting a brand new series of messages called Asleep. Now, I love to sleep, all right? I'm a big fan of it. I'm great at it. So you add that into it. But when me and my wife started doing premarital counseling, we realized that not everyone loves to sleep. It's actually become part of a conversation now. Anytime I'm walking through counseling with a couple, I ask them about what they think when it comes to naps, naps. Watch this. All right, now, round of applause for those of you who love naps. Love them. Yeah, it's a lot of people. But watch this. Give round of applause if you do not like naps. Did you hear how tired those claps sounded? They could use a nap. What we're going to be doing in this series is talking about a different kind of sleep. It's, it's kind of that space, that fog-filled space where you're not completely awake, but you aren't asleep either. It's like the worst of both worlds. And we kind of find ourselves in these moments where we don't even realize we're in it until we're out of it. You know what I mean? Like you leave for work or you leave from school and you remember getting into your car but then you don't remember anything until you pull into the driveway and you're like, what just happened? How did I get here? And the part that's scary is like how much of our lives are lived in that space where we're just kind of going through the motions, just heartless. That's the space we're gonna be speaking to in this series. And we're gonna be looking at the words of Jesus as he writes these letters in the book of Revelation to seven churches. And what I just wanted to say is like, this is more than just a Bible study. Let this series be an invitation for God to kind of shake us out of complacency, to stir us up, and so that we can have a vision for where he is taking us in this season. The thing is, though, as we jump into the book of Revelation, it's one of those books that it almost provokes as much of a response as naps. Like people either love it or they don't know what to do with it and really don't want to go anywhere near it. And there's all kinds of different views and opinions. But before we get rolling, I just wanna set us up with a background and kind of reclaim some words that maybe you've heard before and they've kind of taken on a different meaning over the years, okay? So when we look at the book of Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible. And um, the question we really need to ask is like, what genre is this book? Because that decides how we read it. You believe that to be true. Like you wouldn't read a history book the same way that you read a book of poetry. So what is Revelation? Well, here's where it gets tricky because it's actually three different genres all in one. The first one is it's an apocalypse. It's an apocalypse. And I know when you hear that word, maybe you think the end of the world, Armageddon, stuff like that. But for the original audience, 
apocalypse just meant an unveiling or a revelation. That's where we get the name for this book. The second type of genre it is, is it's a prophecy. And once again, we like to take prophecy and take it all the way to make it this futuristic thing. But really, at the base level, a prophecy is just a word from the Lord to his people to either comfort or to challenge. And we see that in the book of Revelation as well. And the last thing we need to hold on to is that it's also a pastoral letter. It's a call to discipleship. This is a real letter written to real churches at a specific time where they're facing persecution. And these words from Jesus are meant to give them that comfort and that challenge to continue to move forward. We even have a map right here. When you think about this, this was uh, all the churches that are kind of represented in the book of Revelation. And at the time, the author, John, has been exiled to Patmos. It's this island off the shore. They couldn't kill him, so they thought, the best thing that we can do is remove him from the people, and that way his influence will kind of die out. It did not work. Um, He continues to write. He gets this revelation from Jesus, and then he sends it off to these seven churches that he would have been a pastor of. And so what we're going to do as we kind of go through this series, we're just going to pick one church every week, look at the words from Jesus to them and say, hey, what does this mean for us as well in this season? So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get to Revelation chapter two. We're going to start in verse one. And I just want to read the letter in its entirety. I'm going to read it all together, and then we're just going to go line by line and talk about what's here, okay? So chapter 2, starting in verse 1, these are the words of Jesus. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit, understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So what we're going to do is, like I said, just kind of start from the beginning and make our way through this letter and see what Jesus is saying. So let's just read verse one one more time. It says, this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So Revelation, it's this picture book of sorts. So what he says here, it's to the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Think about what kind of being it would take to hold seven stars in his right hand. He's talking about the idea that he is God, that he is supreme and reigns over it all. And then he says to the seven lampstands, the seven gold lampstands. And we learned about this in chapter one, that the lampstands represent the churches. 
And what we see here is not only with the seven stars, but the seven lampstands, in apocalyptic literature, numbers a lot of time have meaning. Seven is one of those numbers. It represents fullness or completeness. So in a way, even though Jesus is writing to these seven specific churches, at the same time, he's writing to all churches at all time. And the first one he talks to is this church in Ephesus. And I just wanna take just a little bit of time here and give us the background story of the church in Ephesus because it'll make this letter make more sense as to what they're experiencing when they would have received this letter. So the church in Ephesus gets started by a guy named Paul who shows up on the scene in this city and it's a giant city and there's just a very small group of believers. And they haven't even heard the full gospel. They've just heard a little bit. And so Paul goes up to him and he's like, hey, uh, have you guys heard about Jesus? And like, well, we've heard about what John said about, you know, the baptism, repentance of sin and all, these stu- all this stuff. And Paul's like, hey, there's actually a lot more to this story. And he tells them about Jesus and all that he's done. And then he has them baptized into the Holy Spirit. And that's when things really begin to change. And look what it says in Acts 19, verse 11. It says, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. It is pretty wild if you read this account. It says that anything that even Paul touched, if they would take it and bring it to someone that was sick or demon-possessed, they would become healed. And every chance Paul gets, he goes throughout this city and he's preaching the gospel and he's telling people about Jesus. And people begin to believe. And look at what happens next. It says, a solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. So here's what happened. Ephesus is a free city, meaning every kind of worship, every kind of God could be found in this city. All kinds of temples, all kinds of everything that you can imagine was happening. And these people begin to see Jesus. And in this moment, they begin to give up all the things that they had known, everything that their background was filled with. And then one night they gather it all together all of the books, all of the idols, everything, all the witchcraft, the sorcery. And it says they bring it to the middle of the road, millions of dollars worth of stuff, and they set it on fire. It's this beautiful imagery of them coming to this place and saying, God, I just want you and I want everything else to be burned away. I only want you, you and you alone. And then this small remnant called the church begins to lead And they begin to shape this city, but not everyone's too excited about what's going on. And we see this in verse 23. It says, about that time, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. Now, the way was one of the first words that was used to describe followers of Jesus. And he says that, and that's the context for which these people are getting this letter. This would have been the next generation that's coming up. They're living in this tension where there's this small group of them believe that believe, but there's a bunch of them that are living in trouble. There's a bunch of them that are kind of being exiled. There's a bunch of them that are even being persecuted and they're beginning to be killed for their faith. That's when they would have received this letter in the midst of all of this trouble. And look at what Jesus says to them. He says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. 
So Jesus says, I know all the things you do. And I think that's important to remember today, that there's nothing that you're hiding from God. He sees it all. He knows it all. And then he just goes on this list of just celebrating them for all the things that he sees that he loves. Maybe you've had that thought of like, what is it that I do that Jesus really celebrates and loves and wants me to do more of? We get a short list right here. It says, Jesus celebrates when we work hard, have patient endurance, don't tolerate evil people, examine the claims of false teachers, patiently suffer without quitting. And there's this idea that don't tolerate evil people. This was within the church. It's that they began to follow this way and they saw God's way. And if there's anyone that was falling short of that, if there was anyone who was kind of hypocritical, saying one thing, but believing something different or living something different, they would call them out and they challenged one another in love and in grace and in truth. And they examined the claims of false teachers. That's what he was getting to with the Nicolaitans. There were so many new groups arising, taking a little bit of Christianity, adding their own twist to it and presenting it as an equal alternative. And he says, no, no, I know that you guys don't let that happen. And he celebrates them over and over again. And as I was reading that this week, I was brought to this question, would Jesus celebrate us for those same things? Are we living out those things? Because listen, this is a church that sounds amazing. It's a church that does remind me a lot of Trader's Point. Like I see us in those things. And you could imagine the leader, the pastor of this church getting up reading this letter to all of the people and you can just feel them celebrating, being excited like God sees us, he knows everything and he's celebrating us. There's like high fives happening in the back. Everyone's pumped, chest bumps and other stuff people do, you know. But here's what I want us to see. We can do all the right things, but if we're missing this one part, if we're missing this one piece, then it's ultimately not what Jesus wants for us. He doesn't want us to just do good things. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He doesn't want us to just be heartless when it comes to him. And look at what he says. He says, but I have this complaint against you. And you can hear the sounds of the high fives grow silent. And with eyes of fear, they look to the pastor to see what he's going to say next. He says, you don't love me or you, each other as you did at first. And maybe you're like, what do you mean? Like this church is on fire for Jesus. They're doing all of these things. They're suffering. They're calling people out. They're spreading the gospel. Like what more could he want from them? Love. Anytime you get with Jesus, it's only a matter of time before he makes the main thing the main thing. He boils it all down. It's the most important thing, loving God and loving people. And he says, you, you've lost it. And it reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, to be sacrificed, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, love is what makes or breaks it all. It's not just to do the thing. It's the motivation for why we are here in the first place. And it's the correction that Jesus gives to the church in Ephesus. And it's the same one me and you have to wrestle with as well. He calls them out. He said, you started one way. You had that love. But you don't have it anymore. And I, I just want to ask you today. Would you say that? 
Would you say, I don't love Jesus or others like I did at first? And I'm still coming. I'm still a part of things, but that love's just not the same. There's no shame in it. It's just a moment of vulnerability, a moment to confess, and to say, I don't have that love, like, not like I once did. But I, you know, I come to church when I can, and I pray when I can, and I go to group when I can, and I serve when I can. There's like this indifference to your faith where you could kind of take it or leave it. That's what it feels like to be asleep. And you're reminded of it every time you come in and, and you're standing there and you're worshiping and you're going through the motions, but you don't have it like you once did. And you see the person next to you and their hands are in the air and they're crying and they're just filled with so much passion. You're like, I wish I could have that again. And you go to serve and, and you're there and you're present, but you're not really there. But you see the joy on other people's faces as they make a difference. But really, you're just checking your phone, counting the minutes until you can be done. Some of you even come in here and you sit for the message and you literally fall asleep during the message. I know because I can see you. It's very bright in here. And Jesus sees all of this, and this is his call. He says, hey, I want you to remember your first love. That's the beginning. You want that back, you gotta remember your first love. And there's something different about that first love, that beginning love. And it's in all aspects of our life. Like remember when you got your first kind of real job and you went, you were blown away that they would hire you to do what you're doing. And you just had rose colored glasses. You walked in, this is like, this place is incredible. The people, pleasant, the pay, unreal. I didn't even know checks could be this big. Like, I can't believe I'm getting paid this much. I might have to use some of this money to get security because I can't be walking around with this kind of money. Like, this is, this is a lot. But you fast forward a few years and that, that passion and that love has kind of faded. And you're really kind of going back and forth now if you're going to have a fist fight in the parking lot this Friday. It's like that, that love is gone. Or think back to that romantic relationship that you had or have. Like I was thinking about this this week when I first started dating my wife, I was infatuated. I hung on to every word she said. I wanted to be with her. I was there. And I remember we were just going around one week and we went to a few different places and she would pick something up and talk about how much she liked it and then put it down. And I woke up one day and I just recalled everything she put her hands on. I was like, I'm buying it all. Take it easy. Most of it was pretty small. It was like chapstick or some candy. <laughs> but one of the things was a book that she really wanted. So I go out and I get all of this. I create this gift basket and I give it to her. And she was smitten. Like she, she, she enjoyed it. How, how do I know? Well, because she called me the next day when I was at work. And I'm just thinking, you know, my sugar pie just wants to hear my voice. So I pick up the phone and I noticed pretty quickly that she didn't mean to call me. She butt dialed me. She's hanging out with one of her friends, but she's telling her about how amazing I am and all these gifts that I gave her. And did I hang up when I realized this, this is a private conversation not meant for me? Yes, eventually I hung up, you know what I mean? But I wanted to know 
how else I could better serve and love her. So I stayed on the phone just a little bit longer. But I want you to go back to that place right now. I want you to remember when you first saw Jesus for who he is and all that he's done. When you came to terms with the fact that there's a God of this universe, powerful beyond measure, knows no ends, created all things, spoke them into existence, and then looked out and said, I love my creation. And it didn't just end there with this love, but he looked out and he saw the brokenness and he saw the pain and he said, I'm willing to send my only son here. And he's gonna go in and he's gonna live that perfect life. And he's gonna die on a cross for me that this God of the universe loves me so much that he would even die and sacrifice his only son. Remember how you felt when you got that new identity, when you were no longer what you did or what was done to you, but you were established as a child of God. Do you remember? Do you remember that space and that freedom you began to walk in when all of the sin fell and you walked in this peace and this love? That's the space we gotta get back to. That's the space that we wanna live in, remembering all that he has done for us and who he is and because of that, who we are. But then he gets to this space. He says, you were there, but you're not there. And I think the ESV kind of translates what's happening here a little bit better. When he says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They didn't just lose it. They didn't misplace it. He says, you have abandoned abandoned it. You've abandoned it. And that gets closer to the original. The Greek, the word here is released. You released it. You, you let it go. He said, you had me. I mean, think back when your first love, when you came to Jesus, what happened? He became ultimate. And at the time you were holding on to all these different things, trying to get identity, trying to get purpose. In a moment, you released all of it and you clung to him. He said, you had me, but now you've abandoned me. You've abandoned your first love. So that's that space we gotta get to right now and be honest. And we need to remember what took God's place. There's something that's crept in. There's something that we've seen and we've let go of God subtly and began to grab onto these other things. And in 1 John, it gives us a pretty good kind of umbrella of what those things look like. It's probably power, pleasure or pride. There's something in your life right now that is giving you some form of power that you are holding on to or pleasure. It's making you feel a certain way or it's pride. You've hit enough rough moments that now you're like, I need to control all of this and you are clinging to it. And Jesus is saying it will never work. I need you to get back to your first love and you have to come open handed, let it all go and cling to me. Remember all that I've done. And then he says this, he says, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. So he says, remember, and then I want you to return, return. Think, I want you to go back now, go back to when you first saw Jesus for who he was, what he had done for you. Your natural response was what? I'm all in, I'm on fire for Jesus. You saw the world differently. You loved differently. You approached settings differently. You prayed big, crazy prayers. There was nothing that was impossible. You spent so much time with God. 
You even spoke a different language. You spoke Bible. Someone would come to you on the street, be like, hey, can you spare some change? And you'd be like, brethren, <laughs> silver and gold I do not have for you, but the word of the Lord I shall leave with you. And they're like, no, that's all right. Um, but that fire, I'm all in, I'm giving everything I've got. Do you still have that fire, that devotion? A lot of times we succumb to duty and just going through the motions, but he said, I want devotion. I want you to go back to the ways that you did it in the beginning. You know, recently I sat down with this guy, he's 19. It's Isaac, he's on fire for Jesus. And he sits down and he starts telling me about his life. He's traveling around the city, going to these different Bible studies, just wants to know more about God. He's trying to figure out where he can serve. He started a podcast with his friend just so he could talk more about Jesus and maybe somebody will listen to it. He started writing worship songs. I said, Does that, do you write worship songs? He said, no. But I just have to, I have to get it out. I have to share what God has done for me. His whole life was around this question. How can I give my life to express the love I've received from God? How can I give everything I've got in any way that will somewhat resemble all that God has done for me? And Jesus says, that's the space I want you to live. And I want you to live with that devotion, that fire, that passion. And he tells them, return, return to the basics. You know, we look at this very seriously as a church. We've done these studies looking back at church history over 2,000 years of followers of Jesus, followers of the way, churches like Ephesus, churches across time, and to say, what is it about them that is the same? Every healthy church, what have they had? What have they been a part of? What have the people been devoted to? And we kind of created this picture right here. And it's the Great Commission engine is what we call it, but it has these major sections here. We help people know God, that's important help people find life-giving relationships, have community. And we help people make a difference, not just practically as we serve others, but eternally, sharing the gospel with them. Now, a lot of times when we hear a message like the one I'm given, it kind of spurs you up to get back to your first love, to do the things you did at first. You read this and you're like, I get it. I'm gonna start my Bible reading plan, not today, but tomorrow. I'm gonna get back to that. Ah, life-giving relationships, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to my group. I haven't been in six months, I'm gonna show up on Wednesday, they'll love it, all right? <laughs> Make a difference, I hear you, pastor, I'll start serving on Sundays. Can I just say, please don't do any of those things just yet. A lot of times we jump back in and we just like, I'm gonna will this thing back, I'm gonna start doing those things and it'll be six months from now, you'll be tired and asleep and gassed out wondering if this thing is real. What I would encourage you instead is to get back to your first love. It's the fuel that any of this happens from and it's prayer in the Holy Spirit. What I would plead with you to do is get alone, not with me, not with this happening up here, you and God, to be before him in his presence, to be overwhelmed with his love, convicted, fueled with a fuel you can't get by just mustering it up but to be completely filled with him and you will begin to see life very, very differently. When you go to read the scriptures, it's not just so you can check the box and do it because it's what good Christians are supposed to do. No, you desperately want to know just a little bit more about your God. Life-giving relationships become very, very different. You don't just go to group because you're supposed to go to group. You go to group because you know this is the life God wants for you, to be in community, to be with brothers and sisters, and for that to kind of go out into the city from there. That I'm gonna meet with you, I'm gonna challenge you, I'm gonna be open and vulnerable and confess and share and really do life together. 
and I'm gonna serve. I'm gonna make a difference in this world. I'm gonna meet the needs of those around me practically, but not because I feel guilty, but because I feel convicted that Jesus said, I had not come to be served, but to serve those. And our God washes feet and our God does whatever he had to do. He was a servant to all. So we say, I wanna be like that because that will bring me closer to Jesus. And all along the way, we are filled with this unending power and passion and love. We're awakened. But Jesus also gives some pretty sobering words here at the end. He tells us exactly what will happen if you continue to go through this and you continue to step away from me and release yourself from me, here's what I'm gonna do. He says, if you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. What he's saying is I will remove the light from the lampstands. And the light represents God's presence and power. God's saying, if you don't want to do it my way, then I'm out. And I'm telling you, if God removes his presence and power from this place, it will be a sad day. Because without that, this is nothing. This is all for naught. This is just a pretty building with some kind people to serve, some great musicians, but just another motivational speaker leading people to nowhere. No real help, no real hope. But if his light is here and his presence and power is here, then this is a city on a hill. This is the hope of the world. This is the place that has the love that this world so desperately needs. And what does he call us to do? He says, I want you to remember that, return to it, do those things, and then this is it, remain. Don't leave, don't let go. Don't get distracted, don't get tired. Don't go back to that fog-filled place because I have so much more for you. It reminds me of the language in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. What I need you to do is stay close. What I need you to do is stay in my presence. This is how we respond. It reminds me of the conclusion Paul comes to in Romans. When he sees it, when he remembers all that God's done, has done, continues to do, he says, this is the response. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is the only way I know that when you wanna get back to that first love, you wanna get back to the life that God truly has for us. It's to make ourselves and our lives a living sacrifice before him. That we would bring our lives to the altar. That we would stand there and offer ourselves completely. That's pleasing, that's aroma, that's, that's language of smoke that we would set ourselves on fire with love and devotion and passion. And we would bring ourselves to that fire and just like in Ephesus, we would bring everything else with us that we repent of, all the things that are getting in the way and we would release them and they would be burned away in the fire. And me and you, we would be refined by the fire. Every part, every impurity, everything that is not of God that we would trust and we would realize that the safest place we could be is in the fire, consumed with his fire, consumed with his love. It reminds me of that bush in Exodus 
that he sees and the bush is on fire. It's consumed, but it's not burning up. This is the place that God wants us to live. This is the devotion and the, the passion that we need to reclaim. But here's the thing. He offers it his way. It is all of me for all of you. Everything else is going to be removed. That I want you and all of you. And in return, what I'm going to ask for you to do is love others like I've loved you and to love God in the same way. That's what I want. And me and you, as we circle around this and we get back to that fire, back to that devotion, I just want to give you another reason why, why we should live with this fire, why we should have this devotion, because it will guarantee that Jesus and his light is with us. Because remember this, where there is fire, there is light. The light of God will always be there. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. It is us letting go of him. Later on in Revelation, he'd say, I stand at the door knocking. Whoever opens the door and lets me in, I will come in and eat with them. And he makes this promise for all of those that remain, all of those that stand in the fire, all of those that are purified. He says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. This is the promise. For those who will remain, you will experience a perfect paradise. The way he talks about it is, I will give them fruit from the tree of life. Tree of life was there with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the one they couldn't eat of because it meant that if they did, they would live forever. But because of their first sin, it would have been torturous for them to live without God for all of eternity. So he removed that option, but he wasn't done. He sent his very own son to live that perfect life, to be a true living sacrifice for me, you, paying the debt that we owed, removing the distance from us and God, burning it all away. And now, through that tree, the one that he hung on, the one he gave his life on, me and you are able to accept this invitation to return to our first love. And if you're here today and you've rejected this love, today's the day that you can accept it. If you're here today and you've never heard the gospel for what it is and you want to respond, you can. He is standing at the door knocking. Anyone who welcomes him will be received. Anyone who welcomes him will be met with this unending, unfailing, out of this world, heavenly, unstopping love. And for all of us at all of our campus, what I just want us to encourage us to do, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet and I want us to respond. Not like you did in the, in the beginning. I want you to respond like you wanna respond for the rest of your life. I want you to respond like you're hearing it for the very first time. That Jesus is the most real thing to you. I want us to respond with devotion and passion and love and fire. That this is our moment. This is us standing on the altar, making the promise that we are coming back to be with God. And that this love is gonna be what shapes us and we're gonna release everything else and let it be burned. So if you could, just, just in a moment, just to symbolically show release, would you just place your hands out in front of you? You don't have to raise them high, just right out in front of you, open-handed, showing that you're gonna release it and that you want to receive all that God has for you. And I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna worship one more time. Would you pray with us? 
Father, we come before you today awakened, stirred, convicted, challenged, reminded of your love, reminded of a love that can change anyone, a love that can meet anyone. And God, we hear your call to return to that love, to come back to you, to do the things we did in the beginning. So God, I pray that this is a moment in time where we feel the fire. God, where we feel the devotion, where we get back to our first love, but God, not like last time, we remain. We realize this, this is the safest place we could be. God, I pray we get alone with you and in your presence, and God, I pray you just set us on fire, completely consume us, allow us to be living sacrifices on your altar. God, we trust you with everything that we have. Give us a fire deep down in our bones that we are weary of holding in and we can not. God, lead us in love and we will follow you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your perfect and holy name we pray. Amen.